A little over a year ago, and also only 15 main episodes ago, Beyond Yacht Rock presented the first Whoa, installment. Wait. Sorry. We've been slacking. Yeah, we sure have. Yep. Okay, sorry. Slacking a lot. Hey, uh, that that amount of time and episodes ago, Beyond Yacht Rock presented the first installment of what I intended to be a two-part extravaganza of quintessentially British pop. The kind of stuff people sometimes refer to across the board as Britpop, logically enough. But the term Britpop refers to a specific musical movement from a specific time period, that being the mid to late 90s. We clearly needed a catch-all term that encompassed music like that, but not restricted to, you know, not restricted in its historical specificity. And so... Having watched massive quantities of the Great British Bake Off, I ultimately decided to call them song puddings. Because what could be a more quintessentially British catch-all term than pudding, I ask you? It catches all. It catches all. You can have anything in British pudding. Pudding can mean anything. A soft bread. Uh, a wet uh, liquid. <laughs> Jello full of raisins. Anything. Uh, a pastry mm-hmm. with nothing in it. Yeah. Okay, so with me being a music nerd who expresses passion by digging up more and more information on a particular subject, the first episode of Song Puddings didn't really have room to capture our behind-the-scenes controversy upon the subject of Song Puddings. And so to introduce Volume 2, I'd like to see if we can recreate that in the sort of lively and stimulating debate that makes for a smashing podcast. What do you say, fellas? Wait, you want us to say... That we don't like song puddings, and then you go, no, song puddings are good. I don't know. Yeah, I, I wasn't the one. Or, who, I was. I, I, I wasn't the one who, uh, who had the, the, the issues. All right. Well, I'll, I will talk about my, my. I don't want to say my issue, but one thing. I, I grew up down the street from this weirdo neighbor of mine right. who was really into Britpop. Yes, so, it checks out. Yes, so these yes. songs weren't that foreign to me. And then when we got into college... Right, but you, you had an in into the world where yeah. this stuff was actually known. Yeah, like it's he was... Not, you know, it's not impossible to find. It's just not in the mainstream of American culture. Like, like for example, Oasis would be. Mm-hmm. Also, I will say, I think the broad... I think the genre is just a little too broad. Like, we talked a long time ago about how you could have done one for each decade. And to me, that's more of a Rhino box set that I would buy and or download. Oh, yeah. Rhino did have something called the Brit Box, I mm-hmm. think, yeah. uh, it, which was a lot wider ranging than than, uh, than, than this stuff. Yeah, because the songs are all good. I think my, my beef, once I said there wasn't a beef, now there is, uh, <laughs> uh, it was just a little too broad for me because it encompassed so much. It's well, so I, oh, oh, I'm oh, go ahead. That's going to be the last thing I say before the intro, so you go ahead, Steve. Uh... Uh, what was I going to say? Um, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe the way that I've defined it sounds too broad, but in my head, mm-hmm. I was taking a group of bands that always, always get mentioned together, and then the bands that they directly influence and trying to come up with a name for that. Like, it's already, in my head, it's already a very, like, clearly defined category. I see. And, and that's what I... I think I kind of referred to that last episode when, uh, like, when I when I first mentioned this on Twitter, people started coming. Like, oh, I bet 
you know, yeah, people, all these bands are going to be in there. And it was like, oh, yep, 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 people, yep. Yeah, they know exactly where I'm going with people this. People got it. But for me, it was, uh, oh, this is... Uh, this is my neighbor's CD collection, and a lot of most of them are good songs. And he went, oh, yeah. he went a little deep with some real garbage. I mean, you dig deep enough into any genre, and you're going to get the garbage. Yeah, I don't know what the problem is. It's just songs that were big in England, but not big here. It's Song Puddings Volume Two. Beyond Yacht Rock. Could have debated that all day. I you still can. A I, lot of points for. I don't like. The, I personally don't like those songs. Well, I do. They fit the genre that I defined. I, my, my dumb neighbor liked them. Yeah. We could have gone. We could have gone back and forth. Yeah, I really could have. Went on forever. Yeah. This is Beyond Yacht Rock podcast. We're the only podcast online that, or on your phone, wherever you want to get it, that uh, creates the musical genres, counts down the top songs in those genres from ten to one. My name is J.D. Riznar. Hollywood Steve. I'm Dave. Hunter. And because we're the guys who created the term Yacht Rock, we like to throw a bone to the Yacht Rock genre every week, every time we put out an episode. This is my week. So I've picked the Vapor Trails, Don't Worry Baby. And I appreciate that Vapor is spelled with the British spelling of, of Vapor, is Vapor. Let me tell you why. Uh, the they're vapor super tr- pretentious. <laughs> no, it's because they're a yacht puddings band. Oh, oh wonderful! From Jolly Old wonderful. England. It was kind of an accident that I How picked. How very it. apropos! It was a totally accident. Um, but since the country they were really big in was Japan, they uh, arguably could be yacht diafukas. <laughs> it's a Japanese puddingish kind of uh, same spirit of dessert. Uh, this song, I think, according to the website westcoast.dk, was the theme song for a Japanese show uh, called The Best Hit USA. The show, it was a real hit maker for songs in Japan. Uh, and I think it showed music videos, had interviews, live performances. Uh, I found a couple clips uh, on YouTube. It's a, it's a fine show. Uh, uh, Best Hit USA had a song, had this song as its theme, for most of the 80s, so it became one of the best-known songs in Japan. Perhaps the ubiquity of this song is the big reason why Tokyo was such a big thing. Who knows? Now, this isn't the same band as the Vapors, the V-A-P-O-R-S, is it? No, this is the... Because you know what the Vapors' big song was? What? Turning Japanese. That's crazy. It must have been inspired by the Vapor Trails. The Vapor Trails. I bet that's probably it. It's got to be it. I have a question. Uh-huh. Hunter? On the best hit USA, uh-huh. did they play incredibly cruel pranks on each other? No, it wasn't like one of those oh, Japanese oh. shows. But I did see the host interviewing Brian Ferry on a clip on YouTube. I had to cut and paste the, the Japanese sp- name of the, of the show to find more clips. It was hard to find clips. And then I found an interview with Brian Ferry. He didn't. They didn't. They didn't embarrass him in some no, way. Yeah. Well, I didn't watch the whole thing. Maybe uh, at the end they like put an egg on his head. Smack uh, him with a fish. Yeah. That's the best hit USA. Whack. So Vapor Trails was three dudes: John McBurney, Andy Dalby, and Phil Curtis. And I know what you're thinking. Rarely do we hear a British group with such wonderful, with such a wonderful yacht sound. Well, it turns out these fellows traveled across the pond and across our great land to Hollywood, California to record their self-titled and only album in a little studio called Room 335. Yes, the one owned by Steely Dan's 
favorite guitar player, Larry Carlton. Wow. You may remember the song Room 335 by Larry Carlton. Uh, it's an instrumental, and it sounds exactly like, like Peg. Like Peg, yeah. He pegged it. Uh, I was at Guitar Center in Hollywood today, saw uh, Larry Carlton's hand in uh, concrete. It was really oh, nice. Wow. I, knew, I knew it. Dave sent me a picture of Sunset Grill, uh-huh. and I almost responded, going to the Guitar Center today, huh? Uh, <laughs> the, my current office is a block uh, away, okay. so I went there yeah, for huh? They're overpriced. Um, so Larry Carlton not only provided the studio, but he also co-produced the album, and he also co-engineered it. Um, and Larry played guitar in some of the tracks, but this is not one of them. Though I would call the guitar work Carl Tononian. I wouldn't. <laughs> Did you listen to the solos? No, I just wouldn't use that term. Carl, you wouldn't use Carl Tononian? Uh, I added an extra syllable to make it sound more important. <laughs> this is a vapor. Uh, this is Vapor Trail's own Andy Dalby providing the Yachty licks. We also have uh, Michael O'Mardian guesting on keys, and perhaps Paul Hino is on percussion on this. He certainly gets credit on the album. I love this song. It's a good song. Yeah, it's got some doobie flavor, uh, like like pre-Michael McDonald doobies even. It's danceable without being too disco. It's very got very smooth verses with some pleasant E piano and A piano. That's analog piano. I don't know if we've ever coined that before. It's one analog piano. What? A... Oh, AP. <laughs> Just dumb. <laughs> oh, my God. Singularity. <laughs> Article jokes. Good job, everybody. Uh, it's got a nice noodling bass line, hot licks. Uh, and it's got a bridge where it gets really steely, Danny jazzy, and the guitar solo is steaming. It's a yacht rock banger for the ages. Uh, and this is... Yeah, it's fun. I'm having fun. This is, it's like the rare good time yacht rock song. He's got, it's got a good time narrator. He just wants, he's not really a fool. He just wants his lover to stop worrying and put her put on her dancing shoes. Will their problems cease? Will they actually dance? I don't know. But this narrator and his lover will be wearing dancing shoes. So that opens up possibilities for all sorts of good times. Don't worry, baby. Yeah. Do you want to talk about song puddings? Yeah, let's talk about some song puddings. Again. So, in the oh. first in the first Song Puddings episode, Song Puddings Volume 1, we teased out a few recurring lyrical themes that seem to be endemic to British society, if we're going to take this music as any indicator. Class angst, Riley ironic wit, androgyny, and despising Margaret Thatcher. Uh, we left off with punk and new wave, and we're going to pick up here in the alternative rock era with a big chunk of stuff from the actual Britpop movement I mentioned earlier. So what's the dividing line between punk and new wave and alternative rock? Uh, in its original form, alternative rock basically took the DIY underground spirit of punk and applied it to music for sensitive weirdos. In America, that charge was led by R.E.M. and Husker Du, and in the U.K., it was chiefly the Smiths. Now, it's true that the U.K. also had the more transitional post-punk movement where bands like The Cure and Joy Division and Public Image Limited got their start, so those boundaries are kind of slippery over there. But the Smiths are the first major important band you can point to that's definitely alternative without sounding like post-punk. And my God, are they music for sensitive weirdos. (laughs) Yep, that's my neighbor down the street. Yep, yep, yep. Checks out. The story checks out, Dave. Uh, the The Smiths check all the thematic boxes I mentioned before. 
angst, class or otherwise, plenty of otherwise, ironic wit, uh, pronounced androgyny, and they definitely did not like Margaret Thatcher. They even did a late career song called Margaret on the Guillotine. It was about her. It wasn't about a different Margaret. Uh, but it's hard to say that the Smiths are a purely British phenomenon because they're iconic for a lot of the same reasons with a smaller cult audience in America and Mexico. Maybe oh, even more yeah. so in Mexico. Yeah, they're they're huge. I mean, you've been you've been to any bar in my neighborhood after ten o'clock. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And it turns into Morrissey Fest. Yep, right. Yeah, I, Mor- I, Morrissey is so big in Mexico. When he crosses the border, he's all of a sudden nine feet tall. Literally, it's not a it's not a racist comment on Mexican people's heights. Is Morrissey actually gets nine feet tall? It's literal. When he goes south of the border. That's why he's like he's, a god there. He's so big in Mexico, he paid one of his bodyguards to murder a stalker. <laughs> All right. That's a true story. He got in trouble for it, too. Oops. The murder didn't go down. Look it up. It's a good story. Oh. See, this, this is not just casual libel. This is no, a real... No, 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 no. He was arrested because he paid one of his bodyguards to get rid of one of his fan stalker type people of which he has many so oh, like yeah. being the most annoying Morrissey fan <laughs> <laughs> like you really have to go above yeah, and beyond to get to that level that's really something so he hired the guy to kill him there was a misunderstanding that guy's his butler now yeah I'm, I'm willing yeah, to he was sentenced to, to be his butler I'm willing <laughs> I'm willing to bet that there was a little bit of casual libel in, in there a little yeah. bit oh, I'm probably screwing some of it up <laughs> I, I, I can't remember who, but there's uh, a friend I have who always tells a story uh, who uh, they were in a bar somewhere in an area similar to yours, and, and Morrissey was playing on the jukebox or the Smiths or somebody, and uh, somebody made the mistake of calling oh. Morrissey gay. This is, this is a Matt Bronger bit. This oh. is a Matt Bronger joke. Oh, okay. And the girl goes up. Uh, to these like thugs, like yeah, these, like the uh, cholo dudes. Yeah, like the teardrop tattoo. Yeah, around the way. They're like, wow, you're liking the Smiths. He's like, yeah. He's like, don't you know Morris? He's gay. They're like, no, he's bisexual. Yes, yes, that's exactly the, the bit I'm thinking of. Uh, Morris. I never sued. remember who says it. So thanks, thank you for uh, yeah. filling in the blank uh, in my memory. Morrissey sued by bodyguard, accused of calling hit out hey, on blogger fan. Hey, save it fan. for casual libel. There'll be a separate legal entity. Bodyguard claims he was Hey, keep it separate from this show. Anyway, the Smiths were much more influential in Britain, as you're going to hear today with every chiming, arpeggiated guitar or oversensitive, self-obsessed, lyrical turn of phrase. Uh, Now, before we get started, I just want to briefly explain the Britpop movement as well, since I'm trying to differentiate that from the overall genre of song puddings, and that's where the majority of the songs today are coming from. Uh, Britpop was a moment where a bunch of bands with indie pedigrees broke into the mainstream of British pop. So in a sense, it sort of paralleled the grunge movement in America. But arriving several years after grunge, it was also a reaction against grunge, specifically how dour and depressing a lot of it could be. Britpop was bright, melodic, punchy, exuberant, effortlessly catchy music. Remember, that's the essence of what a song putting sounds like. It's not just lyrical themes. Uh, And it wound up as the soundtrack of a generation over there. Uh, Oasis was the only band to really achieve a similar level of stardom in America. Again, partly because their lyrics were the most generic out of most of these bands. And that's why they opened the show instead of making the countdown. Wait, whoa, whoa, wait. 
Wait, Song Puddings has lyrical themes in the feel? I thought it was just big over there, but not over here. No, you got to go listen to Volume 1 again, oh, bro. Man, I forgot everything. Yeah. Oh, well. Also, that's, as why long I, as, that's why I refreshed your memory and reviewed everything. Okay. As long as the Smiths are still on, I think we should uh, credit Johnny Marr's uh, jangly poppy guitar playing with being perhaps the biggest influence on the Britpop and ultimately yes. song pudding genre. Totally agree. Also, we should recognize Adidas tracksuits as having a huge influence on... Yeah, yeah but yeah. I mean, those that, that spanned pudding. a lot of genres. No, it was... Well, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly in England. That's yeah. my old neighborhood. Hey, guys, let's say to hello, hello to some friends. The queen of pudding's presence is required. And a queen of puddings. I am the queen of puddings! The queen of puddings. Queen of puddings. Cherry queen of puddings. The queen of pudding. The queen of puddings! The queen of puddings should be crowned with tall mountain tops of meringue. I love queen of puddings. Good. Wait, no, number 10! Oh, I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I thought the song started. Sorry. Said you probably know my name If you don't, it's Arkansas Day Now, J.D., he was crazy and he was inbred And he drank whiskey like it was going out of style It isn't a cake, it's, it is like a pudding. It is like a steam pudding. But that is delicious. I'm sorry, did I talk over Hunter's custom? Yeah. Ugh. Sorry. You had a custom line in that bumper. No. And I and I talked over it. It was Danzig singing Call Me the Hunter, that's my oh, name. Okay. You know how hard it was to find a song that had the the name JD in it? Go to lyrics.com. I found one. It was about how JD is crazy and inbred. That was yeah, the only yeah. one I found. Pretty that checks out. Pretty checked out. Uh, hey, here's uh, number 10. This is the Super Furry Animals with something for number four, The Weekend. Um, I was torn over. I, I spent a lot of time agonizing over which three-word Welsh band to put in the countdown. I took out the Manic Street Preachers and subbed in Super Furry Animals at the last minute. Just because their music fits a little better, and I found this their best little slice of pure pop magic. Um, the Manics I love, but they're a little too arena rock for this genre, even if they and their leftist politics are very good. Uh, so with this song, all those themes I just refresh in everyone's memory, they're right out the window. This song is just about taking drugs. Um, I'm bummed you didn't put in the Manic Street Creatures because they're way more fun to talk about. They um, are fun to talk about. Richie Manick carving the words for real into his arm when questioned by a reporter, then disappearing from a London hotel room, abandoning his car next to a bridge, and rumors of him still being spotted all over the world. Is that, I, the, is that the picture that you pasted into our script yeah. for our uh, listeners? People, oh, like, is that the actual blood dripping yeah, down his yeah, arm? Yeah, that's he carved uh, the number four and the word real into his arm. And someone said, what do you say to people that don't think you're for real? And he just pulled out a razor and carved for real in his arm. Well, a good thing he wasn't trying to carve the name of the song something for the weekend into his arm. Yeah. Uh, I think he was legally declared dead not too long ago. He was like declared dead finally. in 2008, but in oh. 2016, 
I mean, they have no body. Uh, right, yeah. He just but his sister is leading the fight. Apparently, there's... Uh, the clue that came up was he crashed the bridge at 2.55, which didn't check out, but then they realized it was a 24-hour clock and not a 12-hour clock, which meant he did it at almost 3 a.m. in the morning, and it opens up more questions. It's, it's fascinating. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we got to, we got to talk a little bit about the Manic Street Preachers. Yeah, my, my neighbor down the street used to go on and on about them. <laughs> I bet he did. Something for the weekend was a top 20 hit in the UK, which is about as well as most of the biggest super furry animal singles tended to do, since they were always perceived as something of an off-kilter cult band, despite making a lot of infectiously catchy and imaginative music. Uh, this song has a real sharp contrast between the driving herky-jerky verses and the druggy arm-swaying chorus. Oh, I'm so sorry, Steve. Okay, sorry. Yeah, the uh, super furry animal songs are usually kind of short. Yeah, Unless they're doing like a real on. long psychedelic jam. It's it al- kind of It also was the, the same other. thing through the whole... It was very even keel. There was no yeah. highs or lows. So I yeah, they switched between the two contrasting me. sections, and that's the song. Uh, it's from their, their debut album, Fuzzy Logic, from 1996, which sold decently well but paved the way for bigger-selling albums later. I think maybe if Americans know a super furry animal song, like just from ambient sinking into your head whatever it might be juxtaposed with you from their fifth album in 2001 but i I'm know not that really song sure. okay yeah that's i think that was the closest they came to having a hit in america uh they were simultaneously one of the most electronic and psychedelic bands on the brit pop scene and they rivaled the manic street preachers as the biggest and most important band to come out of a 1990s welsh music scene that also included bands like catatonia Gorky's Zygotic Mincy, which I don't know if I pronounced that right, and the Stereophonics. Uh, the, Stereophonics. The EP that SFA released in 1995 with an incredibly long one-word title in Welsh, plus the subtitle in space, holds the Guinness World Record for longest EP title. They also hold the record for the biggest-selling Welsh-language album of all time with their fourth full-length, spelled M-W-N-G, which, as far as I can tell, is pronounced like in Mungbean, but it's hard to tell because Welsh is a language where the letter W is a vowel. My Wang. My there Wang. You go. Oh, yeah. It's just My Wang without yeah. the English vowels. Uh, the band had decided since they weren't getting a big pop radio breakthrough anyway, they might as well record all the side songs they've been writing in Welsh and put them all out in one fell swoop. I don't know how official that designation is. It may just have been that once Mung sold about as well as a regular Super Furry Animals album, everyone just assumed it would be the biggest Welsh language album of all time because what the hell competition would it have? Um, There was also a story that when creation label head Alan McGee was looking to sign them, he attended one of their live gigs and afterwards asked if they'd be willing to sing in English instead of Welsh. And, of course, they'd just been singing in, in heavily accented English. But this brings up a question. Could this be why they never got bigger in England? Like a just-barely-there language and reference barrier? Similar to the reason why all these song puddings never got bigger in America? Have I discovered a new sub-genre? A sub-sub-genre? 
Should this also be listed as a song rarebit? I couldn't find any other that's a good Welsh one. food names. That's, that a, any that's, a, weird, that's a weird kind of food. Yeah, it's a rarebit. I was, I was that a thinking, bunch of cheese that you put bread in? Yeah. No. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, like almost they like also put beer. It's a beer bread. cheese oh, okay. dip, yeah. basically. What do you think of the term sheep shaggers for the Welsh music? Because it's a delightfully toured experience that the Welsh are famous for. And island tradition, kind of like this song. I think that's a great subject matter for casual libel. Mm? Okay. I think that would fit more with people. That fits more with New Zealand. Oh no, the Welsh are sheep shaggers too. Mm, and yeah, not you know, like not, not as like, great. Yeah, I yeah mean, like maybe you know what? I think they get into the goats as well. We, if you, I think if you were to poll a hundred people, like on Family Feud, mm-hmm. you know, it's like. Who, which, which country are banging sheep? Bang sheep the most. I think New Zealand would be the number one answer. Really? That family See, would. I think Scotland or Ireland would be up there as well. But I just know people from England that refer to Welsh people as sheep shaggers. Huh. Well, I tried to do some uh, respectful research about who the Welsh are because I don't know that much about them. <laughs> Welsh is a Celtic language, and the Welsh people used to be a subgroup of the larger Celtic Britons who lived in Britain prior to the island's conquest by the Angles from Anglia, about where the modern German-Danish border is, and the Saxons from Saxony in northern Germany. After that invasion and settlement, which took place in the 5th to 7th centuries following the collapse of Roman rule, some groups of Celtic Britons migrated elsewhere, including a group dubbed the Bretons instead of the Britons. They went to Brittany in northern France. And then there's the Cornish of Cornwall, at the southwestern tip of England, which we all remember from episode 13, mm-hmm. as the home of the local fairy creatures called Spriggans. Of course. And I stopped this line of research here because it was way too confusing. I should have... Uh, At this point, we just want to talk about Saxon. I wish right. I... Right. a great band. I wish I saw this coming. I would have read it in the Dan Carlin hardcore history voice. Mm. Hey, guys, I want to back up for a moment. I, I just did a little bit of on-the-spot research. Uh-oh. Sheep shagger, also spelled sheep shagger or sheep dash shagger, is a derogatory term most often used to refer to Welsh people, implying that the subject has sex with sheep. Oh, is that what it implies? Yes. In a court case in Britain, the use of the term directed at a Welsh person was ruled to be racially aggravated. This is why we it's don't not, allow it's not, computers. It's not as fun when you don't just make up libelous things off the top of your head. Stop reading articles. It's ruining your entire persona. This is why we only give you those. He said a friend of yours was here, but we all called him Steve. Clean You are a, you do shower a lot. If, yeah, I've never smelled a bad Steve's body odor. I, I try yeah. not to. You and know, we spent I, like a weekend together on a boat. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I don't I'm not that active, so I don't sweat that much. I don't think usually. And what I I, I forgot I completely forgot how I um, converted all my uh, my bootleg British Bake Off files into a usable format. So I couldn't pull any Paul Hollywood quotes to oh. to judge me favorably in the bumpers, so I just pulled uh, some other oh. people calling me out by name uh, positively from songs. Uh, so this is uh, this is Robin Hitchcock. The song is called "So You Think You're in Love." 
Robin Hitchcock started his career as the lead singer of the Soft Boys, a psychedelic punk band that was never commercially successful even in the UK, but they did make an all-time top-to-bottom classic album called Underwater Moonlight and then broke up. It's really hard to leave them out of volume one. Now, Robin, the lead singer, went solo and was a college radio staple during the 80s. And his songwriting approach was usually to write weird, druggy lyrics filled with psychedelic whimsy, just like Sid Barrett, but without actually taking any LSD and hence not losing his mind like Sid Barrett. Now, this song is about as straightforward as Robin gets, both lyrically and musically. It's a nifty little nugget of pure pop magic, which, again, is what we're looking for in a proper song pudding. And this is the best example of him fulfilling that requirement that I could find in his catalog. Now, this is from his 1991 album, Perspex Island, which was not his biggest or most acclaimed, but it did contain this, which is his biggest hit on American college radio, and did not come remotely close to charting on the pop side. The guitar player on this track is Peter Buck from R.E.M. Hey, yeah. one of my favorite bands. Yeah. And the R.E.M. You like R.E.M.? Ah, oh, I love them. Wow. R.E.M. claimed the Soft Boys as a major influence in their combination of Beatlesque melodies, chiming birdsy guitars, and weird indecipherable lyrics. I'll read off some uh, some Robin Hitchcock titles for those who are not familiar. Uh, Acid Bird, Brenda's Iron Sledge, I Often Dream of Trains, The Man with the Light Bulb Head, A Globe of Frogs, Madonna of the Wasps, I remember seeing that one on MTV a little bit, and the least accurate title of all of them, which we heard in the bumper, Clean Steve. Not so inaccurate. Yeah. Man, with Reach Out and Grab You titles like that, it's hard to imagine why he never caught on stateside. Baffling. Especially if he listed them all in a <laughs> row like that. Yeah, love a good list. <laughs> all right. Before you buy my album, I must list all the titles Here's for some you. others you haven't heard of. Rockstone Up the Bum. Roundabout Turn Around. The Queen is Whimsy. <laughs> my sister's cakes are the tasty ones. Shall I continue or do you not want to buy the album? Okay, goodbye. <laughs> Uh, by the Queen's whimsy, I say. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the Soft Boys, specifically their guitarist, Kimberly Rue. Uh, you may not know his name off the top of your head, but after he left the Soft Boys, he went on to form a little old new wave band called Katrina and the Waves. He then went on to write a little old song called Walking on Sunshine. So I feel comfortable declaring that he is the richest man ever to be named Kimberly. I did some research on this. Oh, really? And I believe you're right. Like, the richest person named Kimberly is probably Kimberly Kardashian. Right. But that's but she's not, a, not man. a guy. Yeah. So you can learn more about other guys named Kim on the website www.guysnamedkim.com. What about Kim.com? Yeah. He, I think he lost a lot of money in the oh, lawsuit. Okay. Anyway, it's a great website for uh, guys named Kim. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a sequel to a boy named Sue, a guy named Kim. No, I think uh, I did the sequel to a boy. Oh, named that's Sue. right, you did. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, the old Shel Silverstein song. <laughs> oh boy, uh, boy, Walking on Sunshine made a fuckload of money from licensing movies and TV commercials and such. Uh, it was reportedly still bringing in about a million dollars a year total from each year from 2000 to 2010. 
It was one of the most profitable songs in EMI Records history, uh, and Rue was smart enough to retain the publishing rights. That is hard to do. That is hard to do, and congrats, Mr. Rue. Yeah, it's very, very rare that that happens. Uh, fun fact about the Soft Boys name. Do you Not to be confused with the Moist Boys, which is the Ween side project. Right, and that has boys with a Z, I believe, on the end. The it's not even boys. close. Why would you even so, bring that up? Just so, so you, you don't get confused. Do you want to say you just want get to off drop, my ass? Just, you want to drop that you know things about Ween? Yeah. Why not? Just because yeah, you don't like him. He always drops things that he knows about Ween. All right. Anyway, you sports buffs know how in uh, hockey, the guys who act tough and start fights are usually called enforcers or goons. Well, in English football, they're known as hard men. It's the opposite of soft boys, you see. I did some research on hard men of football. Some renowned hard men of football include Nobby Stiles, Ron Chopper Harris, and Vinnie Jones, the leader of Wimbledon FC's so-called crazy gang, which shocked Liverpool to win the only FA Cup in club history in 1988. Ooh. Jones was a notorious ball grabber, yeah. the Draymond Green of his day. He Wait, hold- how, is a ball grabber somebody who keeps touching the ball with their hands and then they get a whistle blown at them? No, that's illegal. It's, I know, I know. Football. but it, it sounds- He would grab people's balls with his oh, hands. Yeah. Testicle like testicles. touchers. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Which is technically also illegal, but harder to catch people at. Right. I, I think it's funny that there's a professional soccer player who's known for like, Oh, I'm sorry. Oops. Yes. Oops. My I fault. I was begging pardon. He catches the ball. I'm sorry, you can see this. He catches the soccer ball mid in the... Oh! Whoopsie <laughs> me! daisy There he goes again, the old notorious bull grabber. Yeah, yeah. that's called the goalie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Vinnie Jones holds the English record for the fastest booking, that's a yellow card, ever, which was three seconds into a game. Did he just run up and grab somebody's balls? Apparently. Sorry, Uh, I was aiming for his taint. He was also sent off, that's a red card, 12 times in his professional career, but mostly I'm bringing up because of his scandal involving a 1992 home video called Soccer's Hard Men. And before you ask, it is not a porno, it was rather the, quote, toughest football video in history. And it was hosted or presented by Vinnie Jones, who in between segments would teach aspiring young hard men all his dirty tricks to intimidate opponents, engage in foul play, cheat, and grab people's balls. Yeah, checking the old oil. Yeah, the video sold quite well, quite well indeed, because a lot of people need to know how to grab balls properly without getting caught <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Uh, but it comes caused, in handy on the subway. Yeah, uh, but it caused more than a bit of controversy, and was disavowed by every club whose players were involved. Wimbledon FC's chairman called Jones a quote mosquito brain, no! cutting British insults, and refused to sell it in the club's gift shop. And Jones was fined twenty thousand pounds by the Football Association for quote bringing the game into disrepute. Which is the most British crime ever. Whatever, he was taking Vinnie Jones. Are you mosquito brain? Come here. Do some of that ball grab. It helps us win games. <laughs> no, not on me. <laughs> well, listen, if you need to grab my balls to win football games, grab my balls. There you go, Vinny. Hey, uh, love this video. Oh, you must moisturize. Uh, this, this, that whole bit was too British to, to not include. I hope you enjoyed this detour into local color. Uh, Vinnie Jones' epilogue was not tragic at all. He went on to launch an acting career. 
starting with a role as a mob enforcer or hard man in Guy Ritchie's Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Fun fact. Also the juggernaut in X-Men. Wait, what? He was the juggernaut in the, the that terrible X-Men movie by... Uh, you're going to have to you're gonna have to be more specific. <laughs> the, the third one. All of them? No, you only... Because the juggernaut was in the last Deadpool, too. Was it the same guy? Do they have the same I actors? didn't see I that. Know. No, I'm talking about the one that was almost killed the series. Oh. That was a while ago. I don't like any of the X-Men movies. They're all boring. Yeah. Gonna be a banjo. That was what I had my money on. Uh, this is Blur with uh, Charmless Man. That's, it's not like Blur is unknown in America, but the one song everyone knows is Song 2, aka Woohoo, uh, from the self titled album where they switched up their sound to be more like an American style 90s indie rock band. And some people remember Girls and Boys too, that was their androgyny song. Uh, but those those two don't quite do justice to their legacy as one of the two biggest bands of the Britpop movement, and it doesn't bring them anywhere close to their standing to the standing of their rival Oasis with American audiences. Uh, this is this is their class angst character sketch song, Charmless Man, a top five UK hit from 1996's The Great Escape. It's sort of a cross between the Kinks, a well-respected man and Monty Python's Upper Claw's Twit of the Year sketch. Uh, it has a real good na-na-na chorus, which I'm, I'm somehow always a sucker for. Like, Walk on Water is very much my favorite Eddie Money song. Where do you uh, stand on Love and Touch and Squeezing? Uh, big fan. Yeah? What about uh, Long Cold December by the Black Crows? Uh, Maybe that na-na-na stuff in there. I don't remember that one as okay. well. Howlin' at the Moon, the Ramones. Don't remember that one. Na 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 na. Hey hey hey. Goodbye. That's a good one. Yeah. Getting jiggy with it. I don't remember the na na part of that. Na 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 na. Getting jiggy with it. Oh yeah yeah. I remember Master P's make him say oh, where he go na 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 after that. That was a good one. How about Hey Jude? They see the problem with that is they localize all the na na nas to the end. They don't spread them around through the song. I see you like a smattering of nas. Yeah, like you like oh they're doing the na na part again. Oh now they stopped. What about oh they're doing it again? Yay! What about in band names like Sha Na Na? I mean they could have done with some original material, you know. Yeah, but hey, they played Woodstock. Oh, they sure did. So did Richie Havens. Richie Havens is great. Yeah, Yeah. he, he was really good. Yeah. Don't you dare lump Richie Havens in with Shanana. They both played Woodstock, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess I should blame the I mean, how many, Woodstock. How many artists can say that? What's that band you really like? Canned Heat? Oh, God. <laughs> you know, I, when, when, I, when I'm yelling at people on Twitter about bands I hate, I don't bring Canned Heat up often enough. I know. Because I really, really hate them. They're so bad. They're no hot tuna. And that's that's not complimentary <laughs> to either of those bands. All right, back to Blur. Uh, Blur was always the, the more like the art school weirdos to Oasis's stadium rock populists. Uh, Blur started off as more of a shoegaze band, 
if you don't know what shoegaze is, it's a mostly British indie rock genre based around blisteringly noisy guitars and really slow, sad melodies. And it got its name from the way all the shy band members would stare at their feet while playing live gigs. Wait, what's I'm, sure you're, I'm sure your neighbor was into a bunch of them. Wait, what's that band with the Loveless album that I like? My Bloody Valentine. Yeah, yeah they were like the genre-defining. I love that band. band. Yeah, they were really good. Uh, Blur's debut album was more or less in that style, crossed with a bit of Madchester-style psychedelic dance rock. I'll explain that more later. And their second album was a mix of shoegaze and classic pudding croft in the tradition of the kinks and the jam, inspired in part by the recent breakthrough of Suede. By 1994, Blur had evolved... Ooh, my voice is finally changing. Wow, Steve is a man now. Oh, thank God. Uh, we, should, uh, we should bar mitzvah him. Oh, yeah. Be great to have a big party, get a, get a live band. Just grab, uh, his, just grab his balls. Yeah, a little ball grabbing. Mm-hmm. Okay, is that how they do it? Okay. I get it. Like a ball mitzvah. <laughs> Uh, by 1994, Blur had evolved into a full-on pop band with their genre-defining smash hit third album, Park Life. It's how we do it in Jizreel. I'm sorry, I thought of that ahead a lot. Yeah, that's good. It was a little late. But I... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, continue, Steve. Uh, Park Life was more the bright, happy, urban, working-class album for the lads, and The Great Escape was more the angsty, suburbia-type album. Uh, it was regarded as a bit of a disappointment compared to Park Life, but it was still a huge hit. Spun off four top ten singles. Side note, every Blur album since Park Life has gone to number one in the UK, even the not-as-good ones. Uh, lead singer Damon Albarn got tired of being a Britpop rock star after a while, decided to hide behind a character to play around with a bunch of other musical ideas and collaborators in the all-cartoon band Gorillaz for a while. He also had another side project called The Good, The Bad, and The Queen. I didn't know about the Gorilla's Blur connection, but I'm dumb. Oh, Thanks for teaching me something. Oh, yeah. Anytime. That's why I fill the episodes with facts. Everything else I I totally knew. But that was... I'm spot on. I know a lot of facts. That was absolutely bang on. Uh, That's a Paul Hollywood saying that I wanted to put in a bumper, but I couldn't. Because I've... Regrets. Fucked up. Anyway, uh, the good, the bad, and the, and the queen, I assume, is a very roundabout way of calling the queen ugly. <gasps> Which, uh, I don't know, is that a crime in Britain? Could be, I suppose. Well, the Sex Pistols got their uh, God Save the Queen album band. Yeah, yeah. They weren't uh, even calling her ugly. No, they were just... Uh, they said Called she her a fascist. Ain't no, oh, yeah. The fascist regime. Yeah. She also made you a moron. Mm. Uh, Blur guitarist Graham Cox had also did a bunch of songs, and they did a Blur reunion album in 2015, and that was that. That's Blur. All these bands are blurring together. Oh, that wasn't uh, we got anywhere close. It's got to start over. <laughs> Back to one. What's going on? Uh, what happened there? Okay, well, 
I don't know what happened there, Steve. I must. I don't know what happened. Well, we'll hear that bumper again later. We could just edit it out. Number seven. I guess we're not going to edit that out. Uh, <laughs> no, it's fine. We'll just listen to it again. Yeah, it was don't... really good. It was a nice song. A lot of explosions in the middle of the lady singing. I dug it. Yeah, that was all the rhymes, all the different words you can rhyme with Stephen. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, here's number seven. Actually, <laughs> I kind of had this timed out. Could you just start the song again? Oh yeah, sorry. Oh. <laughs> all right. Imagine. You're on an overseas study program in England. Mm-hmm. Thanks to the Michigan State University English Department, you've just stepped off a tour bus. You very much need to hit the loo on the way to the main sightseeing attraction. You step into a stall because all the urinals are busy. The exact instant your piss hits the water, a previously silent loudspeaker starts playing the thing that's not about to happen until right now. Instant your piss hits the water. It was the most amazing piss of my life. And I will never forget this song because because of that moment. That piss must have felt so good. That was the beginning of your piss. It was so yeah. inspiring. Yeah. I, 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 I'll I, tell you, I, I really like the turn of praise when the piss hits the water. Mm-hmm. It's, like, oh, when, it's yeah. like when the shit hits the fan. Yeah, when the yeah. Piss somehow the not as gross. When the piss hits the water means all the tension that you've been holding up, finally you get to let loose. Yeah. 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 yeah it's like when the rubber hits the road. I had, a, I had a rough week at work, but then the piss hit the water, and me yeah. and my buddies were drinking yep. 12ers. I also just want to say the first line of the first verse is summer's gone. Not summer's over, but summer's gone. It's pretty close to a callback to one of oh, our to episodes. to what we talk about. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, so Blur, oh, this is the Boo Radleys. Uh, the song is called Wake Up Boo. Uh, Blur was not the only shoegaze band to switch over to Britpop after Suede's breakthrough. There was the female-fronted Lush, who I didn't include here, but who had a real good sassy Britpop hit called Lady Killers after two previous albums of sad, shy, swirly, heartbreak songs. And there was The Verve, who I didn't include because Bittersweet Symphony was way too big a hit in America. Dave has a question. Dave has a question. Yeah, yeah. The uh, Doesn't that logic discredit Blur? I can take that one. No, because Bittersweet Symphony would have been the big hit, the big pop hit. I see. Uh, also, well, But you, could you not have put a different Verve song on there? Yeah, but that, that, like that was their biggest pop hit, or any so. other <laughs> song. Yeah, like well, their first two albums were shoegaze, and they wouldn't have fit musically. And of all the all the other hits that they had, that was the most pop friendly. You know, it wasn't like a big sweeping ballad, for example. Right. Did you, what were you gonna say? Um, it doesn't disqualify Blur because you can do a song puttings a song by song on a song by song basis. Yes, that is also true. Okay, all right, I accept it. Uh, anyway, the Boo Radleys were also an old shoegaze band. They were named after the shy, reclusive, misunderstood loner in To Kill a Mockingbird. Not true. <laughs> <laughs> there was a governess in their homes growing up. Yeah, Boo Radley. Named Radley. And totally she'd different. always go, Boo! Yeah, she tried to scare kids. Yeah. The anti-Mary Poppins. Yeah. 
This is this I this is like uh, this is this is the sound of Boo Radley getting a makeover so he can hit the dating scene around Alabama. Uh, there was a uh, was uh, there yeah not Richard Dreyfus. It was um, who played that role in the movie Tom Hagen. <laughs> Tom Hagen, what? Yeah, from The Godfather, the oh, actor uh, uh, James, not James Con, yeah, not James Con. He was Sonny. Oh, Tom Hagen was Duval. Du- Robert Duval, yes. Not in Krippendorf's tribe. <laughs> Sadly enough. <laughs> Would have been a whole different movie. Sorry, Steve, go ahead. All right. In a 10th anniversary interview, band leader Martin Carr denied ever trying to do anything like, oh, I wanted to make a big pop breakthrough, and said, I tried to have nothing to do with what was being called Britpop. Our whole career was spent trying not to fit in. We just carried on doing what we had been doing. I didn't like most of the new bands or the flag waving. I didn't like new label or idolized Paul Weller. And I hated media-generated movements within music. You just put microphones up to those guys and they just say the most boring shit. <laughs> but they say it with a British accent, right. so it's a little more charming than, uh, <laughs> than what we're used to. Oh, what a lovely crank. Uh, in, in, in the meantime, uh, a popular BBC morning radio DJ was using this as a theme song for his show. And then for the 20th anniversary, there was an article in the, the NME titled, No Song Sums Up the Optimism of Britpop, Like the Boo Radley's Wake Up Boo. So which one is the truth? You be the judge. I, just, I think he's full of shit. It's got a nice sponge. That's my Paul. Yeah. Oh, yes, it's my, a lovely sponge. my Paul Hollywood impression. One of the judges of Great British Bake Off, for those of you not following at home. Paul Hollywood. It's a nice sponge. That's what he says about every cake. Yep. Hmm. It's up there with flaky pastry, but it's a mm-hmm. sponge. Sometimes it's a Genoese. If it's a, it's a very particular type of sponge. You know, I never got into the the Boo Radleys, but they, they were always compared to Radiohead. Like that that there anytime anytime I put in Radiohead, Boo Boo Radleys would come up as the predecessor to Radiohead. And I never under can't you, can't you hear it? No, it's gonna be right off a of kid A. <laughs> I never understood it. The in- I mean, well, they, did this, anybody this is easily their brightest and happiest moment? Like a lot of this stuff wasn't really quite like this song. Yeah, but still, did anybody in the Boo Radleys have one of those like half lazy eyelids? Because that might be the comparison everyone's making. Who's got a lazy Tom York? Tom York, yeah. lazy eyelid. Yeah, remember when we played him at trivia? Yeah, he knew who you were. He did, did, didn't he? No. no. Remember the I other two of. times you guys talked about this on the podcast? <laughs> no. Oh, good. I think everyone needs to be reminded of the time that we played Tom York at trivia yeah. while he was on another team. He won. And they beat us by well, they beat one us by point. one point. Yeah. You know what this reminds me of? I wasn't there. That Ween album, Chocolate and Cheese. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just like that. Just like Not, I don't like. They do a lot of different sounds on there. This might be. No, I'm just kidding. There's like, like, Mister, would you please help my I'm, pony? Is oh, kind of dropping some more this, Okay. Uh, this conversation reminds me of when I was hanging out with my buddy, my buddy Dave's buddy. Oh yeah. <laughs> hey, my buddy says hi. <laughs> want to wrap up the Boo Radleys here? The last little bits of information. Now let's just skip ahead. Uh, Wake Up Boo was their first and only top ten in the hit in the UK, and the album it came from, Wake Up! Exclamation point, hit number one in 1995. 
They had no idea how to follow up a big pop success and apparently pretended like they never wanted one anyway afterwards and broke up after two more albums that didn't really capitalize on it at all. And when they delivered their final album, creation label head Alan McGee, who pops up again, supposedly asked them, who do you think is going to buy it? The 10,000 fans you've got in this country who can put you at number 31 for one week. Is that what you want? The album then proceeded to peak at number 62, and that was that. It did have a song called Free Huey on it, which I listened to for a potential bumper, but you couldn't really make out what they were saying, really. Um, I couldn't come up with a joke. What about Free Huey? Yeah. Like maybe one of Donald's nephews went to jail, and that was the uh, benefit they threw? <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. How about... Uh, Steve, it feels like he's worth at least a dollar ninety nine. That's no good. Listen, I'm just, that's no good. Yeah, no good. more songs about Steven than I realized before I started researching my bumpers. Me too. I gotta take a pee. Guys, in three and a half minutes, you, if I'm not back, you better start this song over or we're gonna <laughs> hear the 50 songs thing and everybody's gonna think we're moving on. Okay. Yeah. I hope, uh, pee, pee, I hope pee the like the water for you. This is Animal Nitrate by Suede and Suede hey guys, was... JD's gone. Let's talk shit about him. Alright. He won't. I think he got a haircut. His beard looked nice and trimmed. Yeah, I guess. All right, it's I'm gonna not, be such a great joke. I'm he, not, I'm not he, gonna. When he listens back to this, he won't know that we're all talking about him. It's gonna be so great. That was some great A shit talking, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, uh, Junior made a funny joke about his balls earlier today that kind of cracked me up. <laughs> Go on. Yeah, we'll we'll find out if he ever listens to the episodes after mm. we uh, put them up on online. Suede was my number one on my last countdown about androgyny because they make real good fuck jams, which is weird because they're also the most Smiths-influenced band we've heard so far today, and the Smiths are not a sexy band. But we'll go back to how Johnny Marr is good. He was a huge influence on uh, Suede guitarist Bernard Butler's playing, and lead singer Brett Anderson's self-obsessed arrogance and cryptic poetry were drawn straight from Morrissey, even if he was much hornier, better dressed, and glammed up. You know, it's, Harrison. it's funny that the Smiths weren't a sexy band, because Morrissey, even though he's, uh, what, was he androgynous, or was he, uh... He's bisexual! No, but he was, uh, asexual. Uh, is how he described I mean, he would, himself. He would kind of flip between... Yeah, but I mean, he was still, he was still a sex symbol. And Johnny Marr was sexy as shit, but you put oh, them all together, he? not so sexy. Yeah, man, that guy could dress. Oh, oh cool shoes. Oh, hey, welcome back, JD. You made it. I was really um. Yeah, the piss really, hit the water. I was really feeling tense tonight, but then the piss hit the water. Yeah. And now I'm, like, Woo! I'm back. I'm here. All right. This is another hot fuck jam from Suede's first album, and it's not the Drowners. Uh, Animal Nitrate. The title is a clever pun on, on bleh, clever pun on amyl nitrate, aka poppers. 
And I was like, oh, okay, I get the time. Oh, so I says to myself, I says, why are poppers so associated with gay sex as opposed to just sex sex? Like, what's, what, what exactly ooh, do they do? Ooh, ooh. Can I answer? Or do you yeah, want to answer? Uh, Go for it. Ooh, makes you it relaxes your butthole, so you can put a dick in it. I did some research and I found that exact thing. I knew that. I didn't Come know on. that. I didn't. I, I didn't know that it was uh, specifically thought, for gay sex. I just yeah. thought it was. Uh, well, it could be for straight sex. I thought yeah. it was like to get you high so that the sex felt better. It turns out it does that too. Um, it dilates blood vessels and increases blood flow. Uh, when you inhale it, when you swallow it, it poisons the fuck out of you. Uh, but the Uh-oh. inhaling gives you a quick rush and makes you feel warm all over. And it relaxes involuntary musculature, which means your butthole and your throat. Oh. oh it didn't. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, 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 I drew the conclusion that if you're not trying to open up a hole where a dick might go... You just want to increase your overall sensitivity. Maybe you're better off with a weed edible. I, feel I don't, like think, a, a I don't think anybody's relaxer. better off with a weed edible. Or you can just have sex with a vagina. Yeah, but to enhance enhance the vagina sex. Well, come on. You want me to come any faster, Steve? <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah, with... Amyl nitrate, I can get it down to like 30 seconds. <laughs> 30? <laughs> yeah, I'm up and go. Yeah, now, 30 seconds. I'm, uh, I've got what you call staying power. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, suede was the catalyst that started the whole Britpop movement. Even if they didn't end up becoming the biggest band in it, they were heavily hyped by the British music press, made the cover of the major magazine Melody Maker before they'd even released any music. Luckily, their music turned out to be good and they had the fashionable but on a budget image to go with it. They basically made it cool to be British again, and in doing so, they broke down the doors for every other Britpop band that followed. Would you say that they were the poppers that relaxed the British asshole to the big, huge cock called Britpop go up their butts? They were indeed the original Britpoppers. It makes sense in my head, Dave. I got it. Yeah, okay. Uh-huh. Dave looked real confused. I was thinking about something else. Okay. Poppers. Jalapeno poppers. Yeah, you do not want to involve those in sex. <laughs> uh, it's messy, and it stings like a bitch. <sighs> Boy. Uh, this was the biggest of the four singles off of their debut album. It's the only one to make the top ten, fulfilling Brett Anderson's ambition, as stated in the Melody Maker cover story to write a top ten hit about, quote, some bizarre sexual experience. And it was still rare in 1993 for a so-called indie band to score a commercial breakthrough on that level. And it was helped by the other big British music magazine, the NME, pushing for Suede to be included as among the live performers at that year's Brit Awards, which are like the British Grammys, I guess, despite them not having been nominated for anything. This song pushes a lot of the major pudding buttons. It's about sleazy, disturbing sex in the kind of places where poor people live. So you got all that going on. The video is a trip. It's uh, it's real dark. It's almost kind of desperate to provoke people. Uh, it takes place in what the Brits call a housing estate. Uh, in this case, it's something we'd probably call the projects. And the building is dull and gray, like the shitty British sky overhead. And uh, the band just performs in a room with 
what looks like the curtains from the Black Lodge and the carpeting from the Overlook Hotel. Mm. Uh, Brett Anderson makes out with a guy in a suit wearing a full pig's head mask. The guy in the suit is, not him. He's, you know, he's, he's the front man, so he's got to have his face in the video. And then there's this chubby couple wearing leopard print swimwear and kind of borderline insane clown posse face makeup. Uh, apparently, the band did a fuckload of cocaine before they shot this video. Oh, Sounds like fun. every video from the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, super saturated colors, I'm assuming. Oh, probably. Maybe yeah. like, a, like a flicker kind of Oh, lots of flickering. Yeah, lots yeah. of flickering. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've, seen, I've seen not that one, but I've seen that video. Yeah. Before. I think Jeremy started it all. Um, probably. And also the... Losing my religion, I would imagine. That, oh, you're right. That, uh, oh, directed by Tarsim Tar- Singh. Yeah, Tarsim Singh. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. He just yeah. went by Tarsim back then. Mm, ooh, la, la. Before the cell. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, wait, I'm directing a feature film. I want people to know my full name. Come on, come on, come on, button. A lot of dead zones on that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, here we. I'll, I'll try to make this quick. Get get into our next hour. Um, <laughs> so I was over listening. My last one. I was over listening to my uh, Yep Emo playlist, and so I created a radio station on Spotify, and uh, it it did a bad job, and it put uh, Wang Chung's "Have Fun Tonight" on there as the first song, not Yep Emo at all. Um, and uh, I thought, hey, uh, you know what? Actually, this song. I don't ever want to listen to it again, but it sounds pretty good. These guys sound like decent, uh, decent musicians in, in some way. So I looked into their 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 catalog, this, these Wang Chung guys, and uh, I figured they had to have something good. There was Dance Hall Days, with his, which is a, a little puddin' pandering. Um, second, they have a song called "Fire in the Twilight" from uh, Breakfast Club, mm-hmm. which is a which is their best song, great song, well, arguably. And, uh, and then they saw they had this little number, To Live and Die in L.A., which I recognized from a movie that I'd never seen. And uh, what I assumed by the VHS cover uh, was just a middle-aged less than zero. I had no idea oh. that this movie was so good. It's so good. Uh, so I, I decided to give it a go based on Wang Chung doing all the music to the soundtrack, like Prince and Batman. Yeah. Um, they even released two singles, uh, and this is before... Everybody have fun tonight. Uh, so this is the titular track. It's a great song. I'm, I'm a bit partial to the song Wait, and it plays during the credits of To Live and Die in L.A., but uh, that was actually off their second album, Points on the Curve, um, which is what director William Friedkin heard and decided it needed to be in the movie, and, by the way, and could you do all the songs from the movie? And uh, I didn't write this in there. He didn't want a song called To Live and Die in L.A., I'm pretty sure, and uh, Wang Chung wrote it anyways and delivered it. And well, it was, was like, the 80s. That's what you did. Yeah. He, he didn't want that, and they were like, whoa, we, let's try it. And so they did and nailed it. Um, uh, fun fact on Wang Chung, their first album was uh, self-titled but spelled Huang Chung. Um, before they, you want to spell that, Steve? H-U-A-N-G. Uh, before they simplified the spelling as people kept calling them Hung Chung. <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny band name. Yeah, it is. 
Everybody uh, hung chung tonight. Is a, meh. I mean, I can see why people would have just assumed they were trying to go for something that rhymed. Or, as a band, why wouldn't you want to be known as Hung Chung? I know. Seems like a wing-win. Yeah. Yeah, it's me. Seems like a wing-wing. Breaking all stereotypes. Uh, so, as far as to live and uh, die in L.A. goes, I cannot stress this enough. If you have not seen this movie, and odds are you haven't. Have you guys seen this movie? Nope. I know Dave has. No. Yeah. I shared it with him. Yeah. I um, hadn't seen it. I probably hadn't seen it. I hadn't seen it since I lived in L.A. And, yeah. like, right after I saw it, I think I started sharing all the locations with you. Like, yeah. Check this out. I Look just at ig- this. I just ignored him and told him to talk to our other friend who... Yeah. I'm going to run and take a pee while you guys talk about this movie I haven't seen. Okay. Uh, so here's the thing. If you haven't seen it, and you probably haven't, go see it right now. Find a way. And good luck... Because without a two-day shipping from Amazon, you're probably not going to find it, which is why I mourn the death of video stores. And by that, I, I, I mean not Blockbuster, bu- Blockbuster, which was just an expansion of the worst part of the video st- store, the new release section. Um, yeah, I mo- so I mourn this store that you could actually go out and rent an unseen classic like To Live and Die in L.A. that wasn't just in uh, you know a high-rent Yupster area like, uh, I don't know, Highland Park place in Brooklyn. Um, I'm not going to go on a Netflix Damn. rant, but let's just uh, say it's more into the content than cinema. Um, and, and, and what started as a video store replacement has just turned into a studio, and now we're left with no video stores. Um, Dave, did you want to go on a rant about I Netflix? I am so disappointed in the movies that Netflix puts out. They're all terrible. I mean, Roma was kind of okay, but it was more visually stunning and not what I wanted to watch on my TV. I should have seen it in the theater. Mm-hmm. The Dirt, fucking garbage. <laughs> uh, Triple Frontier, aside from the excellent location work, fucking garbage. I've not yet seen a good movie on Netflix, and I hope when their Dolomite movie comes out, it'll be good. My theory is that Netflix is hiring all the directorial talent, but they're not hiring producer talent? Well, you no, it's all, it's all in-house. And I could talk in depth about producers on the movies that I did for Netflix, but I'll do that off air. Like studios, the other, the real movie studios have producers that know how to rein in directors and mm. like give or, good notes and things like or maybe that. Maybe it's people don't know how to make good movies anymore because at the time when that movie like this was being made, which was for six million dollars, they made a ton of movies yeah. and let people make mistakes. And if it was a bad movie, it didn't sink everything. And now they just have to center them down. And it's more than just a tentpole thing. And so, yeah, they'll give movies out to the talent, but they're super expensive and everybody's and they also default, freaked out by making yeah. a mistake. They, they default to the talent. Oh, this guy knows what he's doing. Well, hands off. That's our. That's a Netflix promise. You can do whatever you want. Sometimes it's not the best thing. I will say, Netflix, at least the two feature films I did for Netflix, they were more budget conscious than they were uh, creative enthusiasts. I love Netflix. I love them. I well, love yeah, Netflix you, so yeah. much. Yeah, but you're you're part of the Netflix Every, television listen, department. Listen, everything in Netflix is perfect. Yeah, I just wished they uh, reined in their directors a little a little more. Mm. I just look at the clock, waiting for that uh, House of Cards to fall after their VC money is due. But uh, we aren't going to have any uh, video can- stores to make up for it when that Did happens. They cancel House of Cards. No, the House no. of <laughs> Cards. The House. Oh, see what I did. Have you guys seen? He's the back. Have you guys seen The Dirt? No. Oh, no. Anyways, uh, so I can go on and on about this movie. Uh, wait. Uh, uh, 
Yeah, so this is a spectacular movie. It's like Manhunter meets Lethal Weapon or Miami Vice meets The French Connection. Uh, Friedkin, of course, uh, being the director of The French Connection, I like this more, and uh, a lot of it has to do with Wang Chung, and I think the car chase is better. That car chase is amazing. And it's, it's a car chase the wrong way on... Yeah, don't spoil it. And I was the, just going to name Don't the spoil Wait, it. Wait, there's a car chase? And the stars... Now I don't have to watch it. And because the movie was made very cheaply, they couldn't get big-known people. So they ended up getting people, uh, uh, unknown stars, like, who would turn out to be stars. Well, you have William Peterson, who, because of the failure of To Live and Die in L.A. and Manhunter, sunk his career. But the guy should have multiple Oscars because he's an amazing actor. Um, But uh, the guy who was a star of CSI? Yeah. Yeah. He's rich. He's all good now. He's good now after that. After that came out, uh, but you had William Peterson, you had Willem Dafoe, unknown Willem Dafoe, unknown John Turturro, an incredible p- performance by unknown John Pankow, the friend from Mad About You, <laughs> who is awesome, and even uh, Jane Leaves ca- uh, cameo, and they're all terrific and recognizable now in uh, 2019. But then nobody knew who the hell they were, and so they stayed away from the movie, I guess. Um, yeah, anyways, I can go on and on about it. Like I said before, it's fucking awesome, and I only saw it a couple weeks ago, and I miss video stores. Yeah, and I hadn't seen it in a really long time after we talked about it. I got super re-obsessed with it, as we already talked about. Fun fact, the uh, strip club where they're playing dance hall days, uh, that was the San Pedro staple that was also used in Fight Club, but was recently torn down. If you're into film locations. I don't know what you're talking about. Screams of pain, everybody. I'm back into my material. Uh, when I was wandering around London back in the summer of 96 on that previously mentioned overseas study program, there were two songs that I heard way more than any others blasting out from the stores and restaurants and whatnot. One of them was the Fuji's cover of Killing Me Softly, massive hit song of the summer. The other one was this one, All Right, by Supergrass. Both of them were just constantly everywhere. But... All Right had been released a year earlier and had long since fallen off the charts. It was co-song of the summer all over again. You just don't get that level of zeitgeist capture anymore. I don't know, Gangnam Style had some legs. But it was—it only had one like real ubiquitous run. Like It didn't go away and then come back the next summer that I know of. Not In my life, it's always been there. So it's more of a constant. I got off a bus in a village in Peru, and somebody was blaring Gangnam Style out of a hut. (laughs) I was like, damn. Song of the summer. (laughs) Uh, Supergrass was a very young band. Like Most of them were still college age when they debuted. Lead singer Gaz Coombs was still only 19. Does anybody, can anybody guess without knowing or checking... What British first name Gaz is short for? Gaston. Geezer. Gordon. Gareth. Je- it is It is Gareth. Is it really? It is really Gareth. You did that as a joke? Yeah. 
No, his, I was thinking of dumb British names. Yes, his actual name is Gareth Coombs. I was like Arrested Development. Uh, my name is Gareth Cute Story. That's what was in my head. <laughs> Man, good work, Dave. Thanks. Uh, it's it's like how Jez is short for Jeremy. Like it doesn't make any sense, even though it's the same language we allegedly speak. Like Bill is short for William. We have it in America too. Mm-hmm. Or Ish. Jack is short for Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another fun personnel fact. The drummer Danny Goffey is the son of Top Gear host Chris Goffey. Oh. Uh, presenter, sorry. Uh, as a child, Danny had a very unofficial band with his brother called the Jubbly Spufflewubs. Saw that on Wikipedia. He played the drums on a lunchbox. That was too British not to mention. Uh, he and Gaz played together in a shoegaze band in high school called the Jennifers. They actually released a single on the label Nude, the same label that wound up signing Suede. In 1992, and uh, apparently they had like this young wacky energy. You know, you look and you watch their video, and it looks, you know, it, it's not quite like a hard day's night, but it's you know, it's 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 young lads in a band going around having a bunch of fun and laughs and stuff. And apparently Steven Spielberg wanted to put them in a monkeys style sitcom, uh, which they turned down. I would love to see Spielberg direct a monkeys style <laughs> sitcom. <laughs> All right, run around. Run around. Okay. Film this slow. We're going to speed it up. Yeah, speed it up. Say the same thing. Uh, Does anybody have my goddamn slide whistle? (laughs) Uh, Supergrass, even even though they started as a shoegaze band, Supergrass itself was never a shoegrass. Shoegrass. Shoegaze band. Um... They got a they got a different bass player and then went went pop uh, as a new band. Their debut album was called "I Should Coco," which is apparently Cockney rhyming slang for "I Should Think So," which is silly because it doesn't really rhyme very well at all. Now, does it? Uh, all right, this was the fifth single and the biggest hit off the album. Peaked at number two and also made it onto the soundtrack of Clueless. So even if it didn't chart in America, people still heard it to some degree. That movie had a remarkably good soundtrack. Yeah. Clueless it, soundtrack, Boxstone, Smoking it, Popes, yeah. The Muffs. Sorry, um, I talked over there, but yeah, it, yeah it's, no, surprising, no, no. it's surprising selection of bands yeah, that uh, you wouldn't expect yeah, to be in a, because a, I was a movie. I was a little too old for that movie, and I really liked the soundtrack and not the movie itself because it was made for like 16-year-olds. And it was about 16-year-olds. There you go. Yo, that movie's timeless. Yeah. Clueless? It yeah. speaks to me today. I think I'm I, two years older than you, and I think that's I the look. At, I watch it. Never mind. I'm being stupid. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> uh, I mentioned earlier with Suede how the Britpop movement made Brit- being British seem cool again, but I don't think we can underestimate how much Supergrass helped this image. Not only were they young dudes who made a song about being young and how fun that was, they also made a big part of the chorus about how nice their teeth looked. And if that's not an attempt to repair the national psyche and bolster its self-image through art, I don't know what is. I love it. I love it that they, they had came up with that chorus and a perfectly catchy, wonderful song. It's like, this is going to show the Americans that some of our teeth are okay. Let's go. Big hit across the pond. Here we go. Well, they got it on a movie soundtrack, at yeah. least. Elizabeth Hurley was a big star at the time. She, she made a... She had nice teeth. She did. 
Mm-hmm. She really did. It helps. It helps with her international acting and modeling career. Uh, Supergrass broke up in 2010 after six albums. Most of them were pretty good. And uh, and Gaz embarked on a solo career that is still active. I think mostly. Uh, he's joked in the past that he doesn't play this song anymore, but if he did, it should be in a minor key with the lyrics all changed to past tense. Oh, how clever. <laughs> that British wit. All right, now time for a, a repeat of our favorite bumper. Of course, it was the longest bumper since the uh, first one that mm-hmm. uh, got repeated. Uh, surprise! It's the Laws with There She Goes. Uh, not every indie band in the lead-up to Britpop played shoegaze. There were still some classicist indie pop bands with jangly guitars and sensitive lyrics, a la The Smiths. Bands like The Lightning Seeds, The Sundays, The Trash Can Sinatras, and a bunch of other ones I can't name because I don't know that stuff super well. But there was one band of that ilk more obsessed with recreating the sounds of the 60s way more than any other, and that was the Laws from Liverpool. I don't know what the hell was going on in the 60s back then, but that, this one's a heck of a song, guys. Oh, uh, hold on. Wait, hold on. This, wait, wait. Uh, so this is, a, this is an old song from the 60s? No. no he okay. was making They're a trying joke to re- about... What went on in the '60s in Liverpool? The answer, of course, there's a whole thing that the Beatles that confuses Jerry and the pacemakers. pacemakers. There's a whole thing because I was introduced to this song by an REM cover. I think it's on Dead Letter Office, or maybe it's a B-side from later. And I so I always thought it was. That's a B-side from later because Dead Letter Office was like '85 or '86, I think. That's crazy. That's crazy, man. All these songs, all these bands are bands that Suede Blur. I thought they were '80s bands. No. And they're, but they're not. Well, this song originally came out in the '80s, but then was re-released in the '90s. It was well, yeah, like the the original version of the single was released in '88, but it wasn't a hit. They re-recorded no. it, uh, and then it became a. It hit number thirteen in the UK in 1990. That was like mm. the the hit version, where where everybody like first actually heard it, uh, and that was back when it was still really rare for indie bands to cross over to the British pop charts at all. Um, it didn't make the American Top 40, but it did do well on the Alternative Rock Chart, or whatever it was called back I, then. I'm doing some research. Yeah? This is on Dead Letter Office, and R.E.M., his record of R.E.M. performing it in 1984. I'm going to do a little more what? research. Keep talking. This is a cover. No, it's not. I think this original... I didn't think it came out in 88. I thought it came out in, like, 84. No, this was... The, the first version of the single came out in 88. I just look up there she goes again, and it's a that's song. a Velvet Underground yeah. cover. Yeah, from 1966. There she goes again. There she goes. That's a Velvet Underground song. It's a different there she goes. Oh my gosh, what am I? Rem- <laughs> you think these bands would have the common courtesy not to have two songs with the same name? Well, this one this I mean, I this bl- one JD, isn't I blame called, the bands. This one isn't called There She Goes Again. It just has that as the chorus. Oh, it says the official there she goes. title is just "There She Goes." Oh, I see. Oh yeah, yeah, that's the one. 
Okay. It's jangly. They probably took yeah. some inspiration off of this song. Yeah, yeah there's some there's some uh, Johnny Marr jangle influence there. Let me get back to your song. Sorry, sorry. Oh, fuck, I'm so sorry. Okay. I I got the, I got I'm so confused and stupid. <laughs> oh. It was a lovely detour though. I like detouring into REM. Yeah, I'm glad that was you and not me, or I would have caught a lot of shit. <laughs> Fucking asshole. I've I have years of goodwill built up. You fuck up every day. <laughs> I can't believe we've been friends this long and I didn't know you were that into REM. Oh my god. We'll talk about it later. Yeah, yeah. I knew. Thanks, Hunter. Oh, look who piped up. Looks Pearl Jam too. Yeah, I knew that. That's right. <laughs> Today, There She Goes, no further words in the title, by The Laws, is regarded as a one-hit wonder classic that helped lay the stylistic foundation of the Britpop movement. So it's proto-Britpop. Uh, people who like it tend to describe it either as a perfect pop song or as the perfect pop song. But if you ask me, it's perfect pudding. Just the right amount of time in the proving draw. All right, I got some beef with this one, Steve. All right, let's hear it. Uh, this is it seems, beef suet pudding? No, this is this just to me just seems way too popular to be a pudding. Am I incorrect in assuming that? Well, it's it, it's it's a little bit harder to to draw the line now that we're into the indie and alternative era because a lot of songs that were kind of popular in like one niche audience weren't mainstream breakthroughs. See, and this was this was like a like, this was like the kind of video you would see on 120 minutes. At that point. Yeah, but it was also I in uh, I Married an Axe Murderer. Very much in that. Uh, it was in Gilmore Girls, Fever Pitch, Girl Interrupted, Family Guy, Six Feet Under, The Parent Tramp, and Snow Day. The, the Parent, Parent Tramp. Tramp? Yeah, that was a porno <laughs> I saw. <laughs> uh, wow, how'd they get the licensing I for this? do not. It was a parody, so it was under fair use. I do not <laughs> recommend it. Um but it was also covered, which I see you get into a little I'll, further. I'll, on. I'll take this one, Steve. Listen, Dave. There's a difference. <laughs> He's taking another. There's a difference yeah. between Go on. a song that charts highly in Britain but not America, and a song that charts highly in Britain and a bunch of hoity-toity music supervisors on American on movies. On Snow Day. On, yeah. Go, oh, I've made a discovery of this song that I heard when I was in London, and I'm going to play it in Snow Day. It's the perfect pop song, and it's perfect for our film. Yeah, it doesn't mean that it's a hit in America. It just means that a bunch of it, it, yeah, the roo the put stature, them in their movies. The stature has grown over time. Yeah, it... It I just I feel like I feel like it's in the uh, the common uh, song. If this it? wasn't on, so I married an axe murderer. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been in Snow Days. Well, probably not. Who can I think say? I like, think so. I married an axe murderer was the only movie of those that was kind of sort of contemporaneous with the song's original uh, run. Yeah, and it, it was also Mike Myers at his peak, and so <laughs> most people saw Whoa, that low bar. <laughs> Well, I guess Austin Powers is Mike Myers at his, at his peak. Yeah, people Wayne, like that. Wayne's World is creative, and, and but yeah, but this Axe Murder, Axe Murder was hey, you you nailed it with Wayne's World. Do whatever you want. Yes, I'm and then do something yeah. stupid. And that's what the, this. I remember this song taking very a huge part of that movie because every time he saw his potential yeah. Axe Murderer wife, he, this was song it, played. Was it also in something about Mary, or am I just confusing Axe Murderer with something about Mary? I don't know. Uh, I really don't want to watch something about Mary again to, to figure it out. Go for it. Uh, no, I said I people, didn't want to. Oh, you didn't. Oh, I, I, I misheard you. Um, yeah, people probably... 
would either know it. Uh, Americans would probably either know it from from maybe that movie or from when Sixpence None the Richer covered this back in like 1999. And if you know it from that, boy, that's a shame. Yeah, don't forget the Boo Radleys. They did a cover of it too. A lot, yeah. This 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 song has been covered a lot. Uh, at least twice. At least twice. A bunch more that I didn't write down. Um, the Laws only did their their one self-titled album in 1990. Uh, according to legend, lead singer-songwriter Lee Mavers was so perfectionistically disappointed with the results of that album that he basically just sort of left music. Uh, Lyle's bassist John Power, uh, ironic name for this band, decided to go get in on some of this hot Britpop action, <laughs> and he formed a decently successful band called Cast with another guy who used to be in a different cult indie pop band called Shack. And they, you know, they did some albums and they did okay. Uh, apparently, there's a rumor that this song is not about a girl that he's in love with, or that Mike Myers is in love with, but uh, rather the experience of taking heroin. And Mavers denied this by saying he didn't actually try heroin until a couple of years after he wrote the song. So you be the judge. I mean, maybe it's what he imagined it would be like. Yeah, foreshadowing. And then when he was like, oh, man, maybe maybe my album was good. Maybe I blew it. Let me take this heroin and... Ah, yeah, I, I hit the oh, nail on the head Got it there. right. Yeah. Got uh, it right, lads. It was a good album. Yeah, I shouldn't like, quit music. Just like Perfect Day by Lou Reed. He hadn't even tried heroin. <laughs> or when he wrote heroin. Yeah. I love the sound of class warfare in the morning. This, this is such a good fucking song. Uh, uh, this is Common People by Pulp. Uh, this song is the sort of thing that's been missing from American political discourse for way too long. We all know, most of us do, that bigotry is bad, but we just don't talk enough about the ways that economic privilege also allows people to be dicks to one another. And thankfully, the British, with all their aristocratic traditions that override our cultural beliefs in meritocracy and mobility, the British are very articulate about the frustrating limitations of social class. And this right here is the greatest musical expression of British class angst probably ever. Well, they just lay it right out, right out for you. Oh, yeah. Parliament. You got the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Did, did, did they abolish the House of Lords? Did they? They might have. Like they took away their power? No, like they just got rid of it. It'd be like if we abolished the Senate, except with them it was all like the landed gentry and their descendants or something like that. Um, let me look it up. All right, I'll go on while you look that up. I worked with somebody that was a lord once. Really? Real, real pain in the ass. Oh, imagine that. Was he a director? Yeah. Oh. Hmm. Was he a comedian? We've said enough. Oh, okay. If, uh, if Blur and Oasis took different approaches to celebrating the British working class, Pulp were the subversive, angry misfits who didn't feel invited to the party and made sure everyone knew what was really going on, to the point where they just titled this album Different Class. Uh, it's usually on everyone's shortlist of candidates for the greatest Britpop album ever. It was a huge hit, 
went to number one, won the Mercury Music Prize, which is the big album award that they give over there. Uh, this was their biggest single ever, peaked at number two. It didn't get quite as widely known in America until William Shatner covered it in 2004, and more people listened to it to hear how awful it was going to be, and then came away thinking, eh, you know, that kind of actually wasn't too bad for William Shatner. Just like Rocket Man. Yep. Now they're making a movie out that out of that guy, oh about that guy that did that wow. song. I don't know who remember him, but the William Shatner one, that version was good. <laughs> it probably helped that uh, Ben Folds was the producer of the Shatner song, and he got Joe Jackson in the studio to sing the chorus. So never a misstep with that. Shoeless nope. Joe. Nope. Lords are still going. Oh, they are. Yeah, just dumb. Just, oh, they just. Did they take all their power away or anything? I don't know. No. It's so confusing. Nobody okay. on cricket and British parliamentary power. No one understands either one. Yeah. No one knows who's in control. No one. No one just, what's well, a wicket? Luckily, who's Theresa May? What's her power? No one knows. Luckily, the Brits have it all figured out amongst each other and are making perfect sense out of it as we speak. <laughs> Particularly with uh, Theresa May in leadership. Yes. Yeah, it's really nice that another country can make our shit show just a little more sane. Yeah. Well, well our shit show is, I think, uh, created off the, out of the baffling confusion that is their system. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they just walk out of whatever place and take their wigs off and go, we got a queen. That's, <laughs> and then they, that's how they explain it. Mm. You know Canadians have to pay the queen? Of course they do. Yeah, they're a commonwealth. Yeah, they're commonwealth. Yeah. Crazy. Got the queen on their money and everything. I'd fight war England and, and get the that. queen on the money and the money Canada on the queen. Canada doesn't need that shit. Did you know that we uh, have to pay attention to the fucking British who get married to people and have kids in this country? We fucking fought a war so we wouldn't have to do yeah, that. Yeah, what the fuck? Well, now Guys. we don't have to pay and for every, it. Every goddamn a royal person gets married. It's all over the place. We fucking fought a war, so we didn't have to deal with that shit we anymore. We gotta build a wall said. on Maine so they can't get to America. Oh, is that what you're talking? We're talking about the same thing. Yeah, that's what I just said. I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about. I thought you were talking about common people. Maine wall. Wall okay. on the Maine. The Commonwealth, not the common people. Wall off Maine from Britain. That's the closest shot they have to get here. We'll that's put the true. wall. Yeah, there we'll put a big wall down. in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> fucking red no, coast out. right around Maine. No, it's got to float. Okay. Yeah. This is great. Okay. <laughs> Saved America. Yeah. We did it, guys. We're going to build that mall. <laughs> uh, back to Pulp. Pulp had kicked around for quite some time before they found their footing in the Britpop movement. Lead singer and lyricist Jarvis Cocker had founded the band as a teenager while still in school. It took them a while to settle on a musical style. One early record deal with a small indie label was interrupted by an incident in which Cocker tried to impress a girl with his Spider-Man impression and ended up falling out of a window. He... <laughs> it wasn't quite an accurate impression. <laughs> taking, a, taking a note from Eric Clapton's kid. <laughs> I believe the window that Jarvis fell out of was uh, not the 54th floor or whatever. He, uh, he just temporarily performed concerts from a, a wheelchair yeah. for a little while. Also didn't get him a hit song like it did Clapton. Nope. Uh, eventually, Jarvis learned to impress girls in other ways, like writing uncomfortably revealing songs about his intense sexual obsessions. 
which he supported with the stage persona of an awkward, gangly, pervert English professor who had to keep his glasses strapped to his head with a large rubber band so he could dance on the stage. Guys, I think I said this in the last episode, but man, I could have been a sex symbol in England if only I'd known. I mean, you could still be a sex still symbol can. here. There's just oh. there, anywhere. You just yeah, have to find the right hook. We don't have the culture for it here. Yeah, uh, it's their fault. <laughs> yeah, it's their fault. You you totally get it, Dave. It's, it's the I'm culture. Glad you agree with me. <laughs> have you seen Jarvis Cocker dance? I have not. Oh, that guy's a sex symbol. No. I've mean, never you know, seen Tom certain... Cocker dance. Joe Cocker? I've, I've seen Tom I've Cocker. Seen Tom. He's I've my seen, buddy. I've seen Tom Cochran. Wait, who's that? I'm thinking of Tom Cochran. Tom never Cochran, mind. Yeah. <laughs> never mind. Different yeah. person. Uh, that, that handsome dude from Red Rider. Yeah. That guy. Canadian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Loves the queen. They all do up there. Uh, Jarvis Cocker wrote Common People about a rich girl he'd, un- he'd tried unsuccessfully to chat up in a bar while he was in college. He switched the story around so that she was the one who wanted to sleep with him. And presto, <laughs> all-time anthem. Yeah, uh, the story came from my real life. I switched a few facts around. <laughs> so uh, she wanted to sleep with you. <laughs> and just like it's uh, cult- yeah, that's right. <laughs> just like it's culture's problem here, it was a class problem in England. <laughs> you don't want to sleep with me because of class. You understand. You I'm totally going to write a song understand. about it. That's the key to being a sex symbol is you take your rejections, you flip around the story. And, and you blame politics. Suddenly you're sweet. Uh, it's because I grew up in a coal barn in town. All day, all day. It's because you're a dick. No. It was swim. a dick. It's a class struggle. <laughs> Fucking Margaret Thatcher in the coal mines. <laughs> Fucking Thatcher. I think it was more steel over there. I think we have coal. I don't know. I don't know how much I coal. I think they got, got coal in Cornwall. Yeah. You're just Where confusing the, the, are. the chim chimney sweeps that yeah. are covered in. Oh, uh, that's true. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Fuck can't talk to toe. Wait, we can't talk about those guys anymore. No. <laughs> the the woman in question in this song, the real life woman was rumored to be the future wife of Greek economist Yanis Varoufakis, I hope I said that correctly, uh, who is today primarily known as the leftist finance minister, who quit his position in 2015 rather than sign off on having his country looted by the EU after its post-Olympics debt crisis. Austerity cuts to Greek social services would have disproportionately affected the common people, you see. Full full circle, full circle. So different class made Jarvis Cocker an unlikely pop star because they have a better culture over there is the only reason. But he became a full-on British celebrity in 1996 when he rushed the stage at an awards show to make fun of Michael Jackson performing Earth Song with a children's choir and apparently also a rabbi on stage because Michael was supposed to be like the Messiah or something. And at one point he gets into this cherry picker thing that lifts him above the stage so that he can shower his blessings upon the children below. Uh, so Jarvis, Jarvis and another member of Pulp take that opportunity to run on stage, look around skeptically, disrupt some of the claptrap going on, 
And at one point, Jarvis bends over at the front of the stage and waggles his hands in front of his butt as if to mime flatulence being spewed at the audience. I didn't really get that full story from the headlines. I was like, what the fuck actually did? Because okay, sometimes it's made it sound like he was mooning them. He was not. He was just... Pretending to fart that, with his yeah, hands. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, that elevated him to the status of national hero, and this was decades before leaving Neverland. Side note on leave, leaving Neverland, go to YouTube... Look up the compilation of Norm MacDonald's yeah. Weekend Update dopes about Michael Jackson. I just did this. Oh, it's it's just time after time after time <laughs> of the audience groaning and booing and Norm just flat out telling, you know, he's a homosexual pedophile, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah he did that for OJ, too, and that got him fired. Yep. Um, no, there was the one, uh, Michael Jackson was in the hospital and put up a photo of Shirley Temple, and it's... Not weird, because he's a homosexual pedophile. <laughs> you know, like all jokes like that, but like on and on and on. Um, but yeah, that's what got him shit-canned from SNL. In, e in England, to be fair, uh, he was known as a Wacko Jacko. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was oh. that was the source of his uh, his tabloid nickname was the British tabloids. Yeah, and uh, and they were relentless. Um, and uh, I, always, I always heard that this song... Wasn't the rumor that this song was about Damon... I'll burn from pulp or from uh, from, from blur. blur that they were making fun of him because he was such a hoity-toity upper class. Uh, you know, I think I have heard that story. I, I don't know if it was about this song, but there was definitely I heard that that's ringing a bell. I didn't I didn't find that referenced in in the uh, the research I did, but I think I, I I do feel like I remember hearing that rumor too. I never I never looked into it, but I always heard that that's what this song was about. <sighs> Because Blur was kind of, or Pulp was kind of like number three behind Blur and Oasis yeah. for most people in the and they had four the letters in their hierarchy. Pulp, Blur. Yeah, Oasis had the market cornered for five-letter mm -hmm. bands, but Blur and Pulp had a fierce rivalry for the four-letter bands. It's what put us over the top. The fifth letter. <laughs> <laughs> That's what cracked the American market. Yeah, and then Danzig showed them all with six. So all, all, all of the top three songs here today are some of my favorite songs ever. Uh, this is She Bangs the Drums by the Stone Roses. So let's talk about the legend of the Stone Roses, or more specifically, the Stone Roses' self-titled first album. Uh, it's routinely mentioned as one of the greatest British albums ever recorded. With reason. Yes. It's fucking... It, ah, I love it. It's the single biggest catalyst for the Britpop uh, well, movement. Excuse me, I don't, have you ever heard of an album called The Beatles? No. I know Meet The Beatles. Uh, I think The Beatles is the greatest album ever recorded. There are, there are polls where they will beat out the top Beatles albums. <laughs> they depending, were, depending on who takes it and when and who votes. But They were pushed as being the, the new Beatles like when they came out. Wait, was the cult British? Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, there's your answer. <laughs> Problem is, they had two albums. And the second one was a long time after this one. Oh, I'm sure yes. Steve gets into that. Oh, yeah, I'll get into that. Um, so, yeah, this is, this, is, this is the single biggest catalyst for the Britpop movement, both in its sound and in its cultural impact. And that first album's mystique only grew 
when the band took five years to deliver a follow-up that turned out to be completely ordinary. Uh, my favorite gag from Shaun of the Dead is when they're running out of objects to throw at the zombies in their backyard. They have to resort to throwing their record collection, and they're debating which album should not be sacrificed. The Stone Roses is an immediate no, and the follow-up Second Coming gets a really different... I liked it. I love Second Coming. That's how I, I, I found out about that on uh, 120 Minutes and opened me up to a ton of music, even though it's basically doing uh, like Led Zeppelin. But um, yeah, it. it's yeah, it's, it's it. a switch up from what they're doing on this album. Yeah, lo- I love I love that album. Love this album too. Can we address the fact that that opening bass line is simply Peter Gunn? No, it kind of is. There we addressed. Continue, Steve. Thank you, what, what makes this album so special? On paper, it doesn't sound like it would be that good, even though it's regarded as the best album of the short-lived Manchester scene of the late 80s, which I said I was going to get to later, and I'm getting to it now. See, Manchester was in Manchester, and everyone went to raves at New Order's local nightclub, and they danced to acid house music, and they took ecstasy. Uh, way before all you EDM kids were into it, uh, the Stone Roses album, though, it isn't really house or techno. It's just sort of a fusion of druggy, psychedelic music from the old and the new generations. It's the catchy 60s guitar pop filtered through some Johnny Marr jangle. And then there's the sensibility of the emerging new British rave scene as the electronics music starts to take over there, underground over there. But apart from a couple of extended jams, the album as a whole isn't really very electronic or all that dancey either. And the lyrics aren't really about taking drugs either. There's lots more about dreams and feelings and being young and awesome. So there's two things that set it apart for me. And one is how well-constructed the songs are. Like, it's not it's not immediately spectacular. You don't realize it quite as much the first time you hear the album. It just sounds more like a very pleasant little pop record with some catchy songs. But you listen to it like five times and you notice that these hooks have really, really wormed their way into your head. You listen to it ten times and those... Those songs are just stuck in there on repeat, and you somehow don't even mind anymore because they just hold up so damn well. You're not even sick of them. I'm gonna put I'm gonna put this album on my headphones. Do it. I'm excited to get into this. Get them, Steve. Get them, Steve. Get them. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is the the quiet, completely detached arrogance that this band has. They Attached really, arrogance? I'm definitely putting this on my headphones. <laughs> Terrific. Uh, this band believes it's the best that's ever lived to the point where they can't even be bothered to argue with you about it. Lead singer Ian Brown, he's very cool tone, never dramatic. He's sort of limited in that he never really belts anything out, maybe because of his range, probably because of his range. But... It's the same kind of thing that kind of helped make Snoop Dogg so popular over here. Like, everyone thought that a rapper screaming, I'll fucking kill your ass, dog, sounded really scary until they heard Snoop Dogg talking in his stoner, like, mumble drawl, saying, like, I'll fucking kill your ass, dog. Like, oh, shit, he's the coldest-blooded motherfucker in here. And that's sort of how the Stone Roses feel about your shitty band that they're better than. And that's why they wrote songs called I Want to Be Adored and I Am the Resurrection. So these guys were sort of the prototype for the cocky British rock star attitude that took over the 90s. Suede copied it, 
Oasis copied it. Oasis copied so many bands besides the Beatles. You just Americans don't know them, and that's the oh, Oasis just rips off the Beatles. No, they rip off a bunch of other bands, and they're mostly good. Um, a lot of other bands copied this attitude that weren't actually able to live up to the hype. Uh, but when you think about how polite British society is and how indirectly they communicate, even when they're fucking fuming at your incredible stupidity, sometimes it's hard to come up with a social pose that reads as more rebellious than just arrogantly saying how fucking awesome you are and then refusing to take any questions. That's my take on the Stone Roses, everybody. Boom. She bangs the drums. I'll just say a little bit about this song before we move on. This was the band's first top 40 pop hit, and it didn't go very high. It just made it to number 34 over in the UK. But the lyrics from the very first verse are kind of announcing that the musical revolution is here, and the Stone Roses are leading it. It would sound ridiculous to sing stuff like, Kiss me where the sun don't shine, the past was yours, but the future's mine. You're all out of time. Unless your single is really that good. And it turned out that this really was the proper start of a whole new cultural movement. Like, oh... We're starting a revolution. Here it is. God, blimey, he's right! It is the revolution! But there was only one album. It wasn't a very good yeah. revolution. And honestly, but I it heard planted this. the seeds. Okay. And this song was really about a girl he liked that broke his heart because she kept banging drummers. I thought she was the drummer. No, you gotta read between the lines. Oh. Uh. Hey, this is my favorite song of one of my favorite albums ever. What could possibly have beaten it out for number one? South of Heaven. I am the queen of pudding. This is Steve, and it's no wonder. I run like lightning, pass like thunder. So bring on Atlanta, bring on Dallas. This is for my Super Bowl shuffle. But I'm not here, the feathers ruffle. I just came here to do the Super Bowl shuffle. number one. There was no other choice for my number one oh, bumper, God. and well, there was no other choice for my number one song. I wish everybody at home could have seen the dance you did when that bumper came on. <laughs> just imagine was, how the Bears danced at the Super Bowl yeah. shuffle. Yeah, they said doing that only with your arms, because you're sitting in a chair. And Steve was expressing pure joy where they were expressing. Really well, well, think about how they were dancing, how the special teams guys were dancing in the Super Bowl. Yeah. yeah. It was pretty special. Hey, it's number one. It's Kate Bush with Weathering Heights. Number one song pudding from volume two song puddings. Uh, I have to confess that I was a later in life convert to Kate Bush. And it happened because I heard this song covered on a heavy metal album by the Brazilian band Angra. I assume they're a very angry band, but in another language. And it was the best and most memorable song on there. And I eventually I realized, oh, that's that Kate Bush song that I never really listened to. And then I got completely obsessed with the original to the point where it's my second most listened to song on iTunes, second only to Yakety Sax, because I was secretly learning that to perform at Dave's wedding. You made the right choice. <laughs> that was bad ass. It really was. I agree with you. Uh, so what fascinates me about this song is that on paper, nothing about it should work. Kate Bush wrote this when she was like 18 years old in one night. When she was younger, she'd seen the BBC adaptation of Wuthering Heights. Apparently, Kathy comes back as a ghost at the end. And she'd always Spoiler! And she'd always remembered it because she liked intense love stories and weird ghost shit. And years later, she finally read the book. Years later. 
found out that she, that she had the same birthday as Emily Bronte and was like, well, I have to write a song about it now. In exactly that voice and accent. So you got an 18-year-old girl writing a quasi-classical prog pop song about a famous old-timey novel, intentionally trying to sing like a ghost. She did the vocal in one take, and she fought hard for it as the single, first single off of her debut album, The Kick Inside. And she fought hard about what the single cover art should be. And then all of a sudden, it hit number one on the pop charts in early 1978, and she was in a sensation. Uh, even Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols loved this song. Uh, watch the clip of, on YouTube of her performing this on Top of the Pops. Her eyes are like fucking... It's like Crazy Eyes Killer, but done in a British girl. Um, the closest thing I can think of to an American equivalent of that scenario would be like if Debbie Gibson had broken out to a major commercial audience by writing an art song about the Great Gatsby or something like that. I don't know. It's just... No. It, she it, ended up just singing back background on uh, the Circle Jerks. I want to destroy you. Oh, yeah, a soft boys cover. Way to bring it full circle. There you go. Uh, but wait, there's more about this weird song. Kate had taken some of the advance money from her record company uh, and hired David Bowie's dance teacher. But she didn't have much time to take many lessons before she went and shot two different versions of a music video for this song. So there is a lot of arm movements. Yeah, they start, like, dance instruction starts at the top yes. and then gets down to your legs, and she only got the top half. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Like, any of us could do most of these moves, except for, like, there's a, there's a ballet kick in the chorus that she repeats, and then there's the occasional cartwheel. And really, we could all do most of the, uh, pretty much all the rest of the dances. Well, you know David Bowie and his cartwheels. <laughs> and his ballet kicks. Sure. Uh, so there's the, the video versions, there's the white dress version where she's sort of a ghost with the kind of super amazingly high-tech visual ex effects that you would expect of someone dancing around in a darkened studio in 1978. And then there's the red dress version, which is more for the American market, market uh, she's outside dancing around like a pagan wood sprite or something. Uh, again, nothing about this should work, and yet I can't take my eyes off of it. I can't get it out of my head. And that's your first proof that Kate Bush is a genius who belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Thank you very much, JD. <laughs> These songs are on my headphones. Kate Bush is currently regarded as England's beloved resident eccentric genius and national treasure. She has an amazing body of work body. behind her. She has an amazing body. body, and every one of her albums has made the UK top 10, and she's my last countdown song ever, unless we go back to this format at any point in the future, but let's just say my last countdown song ever. All right, Kate Bush. All right. Song puddings. Song pudding. Hey, JD, play us out with that silly football song pudding that I tacked on to the end of the playlist. This is called Three Lions, subtitle Football's Coming Home by the Lightning Seeds, who I mentioned earlier as part of the Laws indie pop circle. This song has hit number one in the UK on three separate occasions. And uh, it's coming home. There is a lot of that. Uh, you know, New Order also had a football anthem called World in Motion. And I really just wish America had this tradition of recruiting wussy indie bands to do theme songs for sports teams because all we really got is baseball teams that play the opening lick from the violent fans blister in the sun just to get people to clap right? Hank, Hank what's his name junior he's an indie band 
Hank Williams Jr. Oh yeah, he's a he's an oh, independent recording artist. Coming over here. I, know, I guess people sing the White Stripes Seven Nation Army too, but the Brits kind of adopted that as a football chant slash Jeremy Corbyn chant first. But anyway, nobody ever commissions a wussy indie band to do a sports team anthem in America, and I really feel like that should happen before I die. Well, they have a, they have more things going for them over there, meaning that the, they really only have one huge sport, and everybody is regionally, and everybody likes it from sports over there are different. Yeah, At least when people, it comes people, to soccer. The, people the follow their is, local team no matter how small it is. Or arty you are, like... People here, if you're artistic, you hate sports. Over there, there's a pretty good chance you're still going to be rooting for the local club. Yeah, it's less of a dichotomy. Yeah, we don't have that here, so you don't get the those indie bands who are like super into, I don't know, the Houston Texans. <laughs> what now? What didn't make the list, guys? I I say the Beatles. Who? The Beatles. Yeah, they never really made it here, did they? Yeah, the Beatles. Um, top band of the 90s. Steve, Maybe. I got one. I got one before. What's that? What's that? What about Space Hog? Now, they're a little more like Space Rocky. They had the song In the Meantime, which I right. really liked. I remember that kind of being a decent-sized alternative radio hit over here. Like, I felt like it was mainstream enough. Yeah. That, you know, people kind of, people knew it. Um, what, and, or I guess something by Black Grape. Yeah, oh I have, yeah, I have. I know. I know nothing I did, about I them. I did look at Black Grape and Happy Monday. Black Grape was the offshoot band from Happy Mondays, yeah. and I did look at Happy Mondays for this. They just version, seemed British, but, uh, and I couldn't. They were super British, and I couldn't tell you a single song they had. Step on. He's going to step on you. There you go. Remember that one? There you go. That's my choice. Um, step on. That's yeah. That's a real good one. That was that was on the short list of things okay. that got cut. That's my choice. I'd say Saint Etienne. Ooh. Or possibly Elastica. Oh, yes. Both both very good. Ch- Elastica was on my short list also. Uh, and again, I love Billy Bragg, and I wish you knew more about him. Oh, I do too. Schmegel Tony. Schmegel Tony's song, Up in the Underground, huge in Britain. Oh, that's the one that's on your headphones. Yeah, it's on my headphones. Oh, no. It's a little bit too techno for me, really. But... Uh, uh, up in the underground, going down around underground. Yeah, it's a song <laughs> that's about a pretty the good one. Yeah. yeah, that's the way I would that's be. All, my that's on the album "Mind the Gap." <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the pilot I wanted to make? Mind my taint. Nope. Well, so good. Uh, the song and everything. Good job, Steve. <sighs> Thank you. Now, now, now the piss can hit the water. Mm-hmm. Thank find, God. Find this week's Yacht Rock playlist by... No, yeah, I'm not going to put it on there. Go to YachtRock.com <laughs> for a very useful Follow experience. Follow me on Spotify at Hollywood Steve. Yeah, no offense to your playlist. I just don't do it anymore. Yeah. Right. I'll put mine up because I've got the rough drafts anyway. I'll just make them public. Go to, remember. Go to YachtRock.com for a useful experience. Send questions for us via Twitter at YachtRock. Like... Uh, follow Beyond Yacht Rock on Instagram. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Themes by Rob Crow and Mark Rivers. Thank you, Matt Brusso, who I saw the other day. Oh, and how's we he were doing? Wearing, we were wearing <laughs> the same shirt. What do you mean? Shirt. He's our producer. Really? We see him all the time, don't yeah. we? <laughs> we're wearing the same shirt. Blue yeah. button down. What wow. a handsome guy. Guys, just uh, really uh, stylistically, you are peas in a pod. Some sharp dudes. What about the underwear? Did you check? 
Just check everywhere. It's probably me undies or Fulton and Rourke or whatever the. F- oh no, it's uh, what do we wear? Uh, hey, don't worry about it. They don't pay us now. Back, Bye. Back. Star Brands Audio, a, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.